and welcome to the RCP Medicine Podcast with me, Dr. Amy Burbridge. I'm a cute physician working in Coventry and today we have a very special guest joining us. Hello, my name is Dr. Mark Lander. I'm an acute medicine registrar from London. I have an interest in end-of-life care um, and I am also the Royal College of Physicians representative to the Young Internists of the European Federation of Internal Medicine. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us, Mark. You are going to talk about a case of which I know absolutely nothing about. So it's going to be a bit of a test. So I'm going to hand over to you. Okay. So you're a bit back in time and you're the medical registrar on call. Not that far back. And you are um, called to see a patient in the emergency department in recess. And you're told that he's an 84-year-old gentleman that he called an ambulance because he was breathless. And when the paramedics came to see him at home, he had saturations of 84 to 85% on room air. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was quite obviously distressed. And so they brought him into hospital. When you walk in from the end of the bed, he looks quite well and he's comfortable at rest. Um, and so you take some time and you can take a history from him. And what you find is that he's been breathless on and off for several years. But over the last six months or so, that's been steadily worsening. And now he's breathless, just walking between rooms in his house. Mm -hmm. He's really frightened by this. um, And he's quite disabled by it as well. And he's now unable to leave his house. Um, He's been seen by the community matrons at home. And he's had some medications changed, but he hasn't really found any effect on his breathing from that. He hasn't had any cough and he has not had any carousal symptoms. He's got a past medical history of um, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and he was seen five months ago in clinic and he had an FEV1 of 27% 27 of his predicted value. So that makes him very severe. Mm. He has congestive cardiac failure, hypertension, hypercholesterolemia and he's previously had gout as well. Um, you take a look through his record on the hospital system and he's been admitted five times in the last year um, for an exacerbation of COPD mm-hmm. and or fluid overload. Um, he tells you that he's had nine courses of antibiotics and steroids in the last 10 months. He does have home nebulizers. Mm-hmm. He's never been admitted to intensive care and he's never required non-invasive ventilation. Okay. And he doesn't have any home oxygen um, and that's because he continues to smoke at home. Okay. Into his uh, drug history, he's on some inhalers that are changed fairly frequently by the community matrons and he has nebulizers at home. Mm-hmm. He takes pimetonite, simvastatin, aspirin, bisoprolol, ramipril, lansoprazole and allopurinol. And he doesn't have any allergies. Okay. <clears throat> he lives alone. Um, his family live about an hour away, but he doesn't see them very often. Mm-hmm. He has a carer that comes once in the morning, and that's just to help him make his lunch and set up for dinner. Um, But he's struggling to look after himself at home, and he really finds it difficult to get to the bathroom, to wash himself, dress himself. And you notice that he's quite unkempt when you're talking to him. Mm -hmm. He does continue to smoke 20 to 30 cigarettes a day, and those are brought by his carer. But he enjoys smoking, and he says he gets very bored, and it's the only enjoyment that he gets. He's got a pack year history of about 60 years. And he drinks alcohol occasionally. Mm-hmm. So we move on to examine him. He's comfortable at rest. He's talking in almost full sentences. He doesn't have any clubbing. 
His capillary refill time is three seconds and he's not cyanose. He doesn't look obviously distressed when you're talking to him. Mm -hmm. His respiratory rate is 22 breaths per minute. His saturations are 92% on two litres of oxygen. He has quiet breath sounds throughout his chest and there's a few scattered crackles and wheezes, but nothing obviously focal. Mm -hmm. His heart rate is 98 beats per minute, blood pressure 132 over 74, and his temperature is normal at 36.4. His heart sounds are normal and he's uvolemic. Going on a bit further, he's already had some blood tests. Mm -hmm. His hemoglobin is 99 grams per litre. His white blood cell count is 7.8 times 10 to the 9 per litre, so normal, and it has a normal differential. His CRP is 15.8 milligrams per litre, mm -hmm. urea 12.4 millimoles per litre, and creatinine 138 micromoles per litre. <coughs> and those are both normal and at his baseline from previous bloods. Okay. The rest of his bloods are unremarkable. His ECG shows sinus rhythm and a left bundle branch block. And his chest x-ray shows a hyper-expanded chest, but no focal consolidation. So there's quite a bit there. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> He's been seen by the um, emergency department doctor. Yeah. Um, and he was given 40 milligrams of oral prednisolone. Okay. Um, he's had a nebulizer of salbutamol, 2.5 milligrams, and of ipratropium bromide, 500 micrograms. And he's been given an IV dose of um, amoxicillin with clavulanic acid, 1.2 grams. Okay. And he's also having some slow intravenous 0.9% uh, saline. So, <laughs> what do you think is going on with this gentleman? So it sounds like you've done everything you need to do. Got everything. <laughs> Sorted. Wow. Okay, so there's a huge amount going on in this gentleman. He's 84 years old. He's hypoxic. He's been unwell for a long time with shortness of breath, COPD. It's said that he's having recurrent exacerbations, so lots of frequent attendances. He's not on home oxygen. He still continues to smoke, many comorbidities, lives alone. He said that he was quite unkempt. And on examination-wise, he's hypoxic. Blood pressure is absolutely fine, though. And... Nothing else really significant of note from the examination, but clearly he's acutely unwell and chronically unwell as well. So obviously I'm going to do at the end of the bed assessment. So go down the A, B, C, D, E. He said he's talking from a breathing perspective. He is hypoxic. So I'd want to make sure I give him controlled oxygen therapy rather than 100% via a non-rebreathe mask. He's probably functioning on his hypoxic drive, so I want to ensure I don't knock that out. Uh, blood pressure was okay. Uh, I'd like to check his blood glucose. I'd like to do an arterial blood gas. So I'd like to know, is he hypoxic? Well, we know he is, but actually what is going on? Is he retaining carbon dioxide? Is he hypercapnic? Is he acidotic? We know that he's got a slightly um, abnormal kidney function tests and he has a chronic kidney injury, but does he have acute on chronic? You said he was at baseline, something I'd have to check though. I'd also want to check his eosinophil count. He's had recurrent attendances for COPD, so I'd want to do his decaf score for acute exacerbation of COPD. That will help me identify whether, you know, his mortality and his morbidity risk is high. Just to recap, the decaf score um, looks at dyspnea on the MRC dyspnea scale, eosinopenia, 
consolidation on the chest x-ray, A is for acidemia, and F is for atrial fibrillation. And we can score that. Um, I guess what's in the back of my head is, apart from the acute event, so has he had another infection? Has he had a PE? Is this just the natural progression of his disease? And how am I going to be managing this short term and also long term? Hmm. So you're talking about managing the sort of the, the breathlessness for this gentleman. Yes. So talk me through your strategies that you have for managing breathlessness. Okay. So in an acute setting, um, I'd want to try and identify what the cause of the breathlessness is. Mm-hmm. So in this gentleman, probably going to be COPD. Could have an element of right-sided heart failure called pulmonale secondary to the COPD. So I'm going to treat his COPD. Like you've already said, I could give him some inhalers, some nebulized, um, some nebulized um, salbutamol, ibuprofen, as you mentioned, some oxygen, um, antibiotics if I felt that this was an infective exacerbation. Looking for other causes, so if he is in cardiac failure and I need to offload the fluid, then I could give him diuretic therapy, conscious of his kidney function. I don't want to dry him out too much. Um, And obviously I'd be able to pick up the overload on examination by looking at his JVP. Has he got a gallop rhythm in his heart, suggestive of congestive cardiac failure? Does any of you have any peripheral signs of overload, sacral edema, some ankle edema? Then I'm going to be thinking about symptomatic relief of the breathlessness. So aside from oxygen, hmm, I'm really sorry. (laughs) I'm now starting to get a bit stuck because I have to say, this is an area that I do struggle with, with this chronic breathlessness. Now, years ago, when I was a SHO, we used to use morphine on occasions. And further back, we used to use doxapram, which I think went out with and in the 1950s, but for some reason we were still using it yeah. to help that respiratory rate. I know we don't use that anymore. Mm. But and I think what this shows is breathlessness is a really tricky... Yes symptom to deal mm-hmm. with and it's it's not something that we can easily cure and it feels really difficult to deal with and there was um, a paper published in the RCP commentary journal just in the last few months um, that was talking about some experiences of respiratory registrars um, in a training session talking about how they talk to patients about breathlessness And even trainees who deal with the lungs where people feel breathless and the majority of their patients um, or their chronic patients are breathless. They really struggle to talk to their patients about breathlessness and they often don't mention it because it feels like you're opening a can of worms that you just can't do anything for. Mm -hmm. But they made some really good recommendations of how to approach breathlessness. Mm -hmm. And really the first thing if we're doing patient-centered care it's talking to the patient and and really getting to understand what their breathlessness is Mm -hmm. and how it affects them so the first thing is to speak to the patient identify their hopes and their goals because it might be that they want to say i want to live a life completely void of breathlessness i never want to feel like this 
Or it might be, I want to be able to go from this room to this room and be able to recover and not feel so frightened. And so it sort of helps tailor a path that you're going to go down with your management plan. Mm. The next bit, sort of similar vein, is to understand the personal narrative of that patient and their breathlessness. So starting with, with you here with me now, sat still, how do you feel? What is your breathing like? When we start talking, what happens then? If I were to ask you to walk to the end of the bed and make your bed, how would that feel for you? If you became breathless and you sat down, how long does it take you to recover and what do you do to help yourself recover? And again, just trying to learn what sort of behaviours they have developed both good and bad to help their breathlessness. And again, it helps sort of tailor bits to what suits them. The next bit is really, really difficult, and but it's often the most important bit. And it's just accepting that there's not always an answer and sharing that with the patient and saying, we sometimes just are not able to get rid of your breathlessness. Mm -hmm. And that helps to really set expectations appropriately, but it also, it shows that you're being honest as well. And it shows that you're trying, but aware of the fact that you might not be able to to sort breathlessness out. Because often if we don't say that to patients, it feels like we're not listening and they they feel that they're being ignored. And Mm -hmm. this really disabling symptom isn't important to to the clinicians. Next bit is to know about what your local services are to help with breathlessness so you can um, guide them. And certainly as trainees, when we move to different areas, getting a bit of an idea of in your new area what's available. And then the, the last bit is really around sort of making a, a an ownership of the breathlessness for the patient. Um, and it's really bringing in that sort of behavioral change and shared decision making so that they're the person who's driving the the sort of control of their breathlessness yeah then we move on to bits that we we can do um and so you were breaking it down into to three sections mm-hmm. so there was the treating the underlying cause or preventing exacerbations mm-hmm. uh, of breathlessness and then our non-pharmacological measures and our pharmacological measures so for the underlying cause you talked about using bronchodilators you talked about using diuretics and also considering things like drainage if there's pleural effusions or pericardial effusions which could have a symptomatic benefit mm-hmm. and it's also thinking about seasonal influenza vaccines or the pneumococcal vaccine especially yeah. for patients over 65 mm-hmm. um, and trying to prevent these exacerbations from happening in the first place moving on to the non-pharmacological measures these are the ones that actually make the most impact and it's quite easy to go to drugs because it feels very immediate and it feels like we're doing something as as physicians but often it's the non-pharmacological things that make the biggest difference so using the mdt thinking about environmental adaptations at home so maybe changing the environment that he's living in having equipment that helps him to mobilize better um will take that sort of burden of, of strenuous exercise off him Thinking about pulmonary rehabilitation as Mm -hmm. well, um, which involves education, going through breathing techniques and increasing someone's exercise tolerance as well is a good way of um, improving someone's breathlessness, but also maintaining that improvement longer term. Mm -hmm. We have things like fan therapy. um, So the movement of air that's going across someone's face actually helps with breathlessness. And one thing that patients often describe especially with um, the chronic lung diseases is this sort of air hunger Mm. that they just don't feel they can get that air into their lungs Mm -hmm. and often that's just a symptom of still air in their environment so having air moving and moving across the face particularly cooler air 
does actually help just to reduce that sensation of air hunger. So we often have patients who say that they need oxygen the oxygen makes them feel better Mm -hmm. and quite often it's that flow of oxygen through the nasal prongs into the nose and it's that movement of air rather than the actual oxygen drug itself the next stage is cognitive behavioral therapy um, and understanding the behaviors that we develop that almost become sort of habit and trying to address those and unpick the causes of those that's a very long-term thing and that's not something we can easily do in Mm. hospital and it goes back to knowing what your local services are and whether that's something that we can explore it also depends on the patient as well their um, engagement with psychological therapies Mm. and often there's quite a disconnect between physical symptoms and understanding what the psychological overlay of that is just a little question about the psychological services so in our gentleman He's obviously had lots of exacerbations of the COPD. He's very frail. Potentially, we need to start thinking about actually what's his life expectancy like. And I know where I work, actually availability of psychological services is not great. And the wait for that psychological services is, can be quite long. So is there anything that I can do as a clinician from a psychological aspect? to help that patient so I think it goes back to what we were saying before and it's really just the talking about breathlessness Mm -hmm. and sitting with someone and unpicking what breathlessness is to them yeah and sometimes just by having that conversation and having an outside eye on what someone's breathlessness is it helps people to identify oh actually that's a trigger there Mm -hmm. and then when I sit down I realize that I do get quite stressed out and I just want someone to be there Mm -hmm. Whereas I know that actually with time, if I focus on my breathing and settle down, then I can get some control back. Mm -hmm. And whilst we're not qualified psychologists really doing a focused Mm -hmm. CBT course, sometimes that just unpicking the narrative really does help people identify what drives some of their breathlessness. Okay. Have you found that actually maybe drawing a diagram of the lungs and what's happening in the lungs may help? So drawing a normal airway and then an abnormal airway. Do people find it helpful to visualise actually what's going on in their lungs? I think some people do mm-hmm. and some people don't. Okay. And um, it's it's very tricky because we're talking about things that are on quite a sort of microscopic level almost, especially with COPD or lung mm-hmm. fibrosis. Mm-hmm. So sometimes that really does help people, especially if it's talking about things like fluid overload or yes. pleural effusions okay. or things like that. Mm. If it's down to the interstitial lung disease, sometimes it doesn't help as much because it, they look relatively similar from the outside. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just trying to understand what's going on. I think also sometimes people feel very personal about their breathlessness and trying to homogenize breathlessness as a symptom mm-hmm. can be quite difficult. And mm. again, it feeds into this thing of the doctor's not listening to me and actually trying to explain to them what they're feeling rather than having them explain to you what they're feeling really does. Sometimes it can sort of promote that narrative. It's a really interesting point, actually, because mm. I think sometimes we definitely do that with patients is we say, well, this is how you're feeling. Well, how do we know how they're feeling? And yeah, definitely conscious of doing that. Mm. The next stage we move on to is the pharmacological Mm -hmm. management. And we're often quite quick to go there first before the non-pharmacological because it feels easier to us. And it's quick. It's quick. 
And that the problem is, is the lack of time in a busy AMU or in a consultation is to how can we have all these do have all these big discussions in 10 minutes? So unfortunately, we don't have an awful lot in our arsenal for breathlessness mm-hmm. um, from a pharmacological point of view. So we have opioids, as you mentioned, with morphine. There's nothing that says that an oral opioid or a subcut opioid is better in managing breathlessness. Okay. Um, and they're equally as effective. Um, you do also have an additional analgesic and anti-anxiety um, sort of side effect from it, which can help some people, especially if the breathlessness has a significant anxious um, overlay. Mm-hmm. We always get very worried about carbon dioxide retention when we're giving people opioids, but mm. really the, the doses that we're giving are so small that that's a minimal effect. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also a concern of respiratory depression linked to that as well. Which brings into play something around the doctrine of double effect, where we're talking about if we give someone a medication to control a symptom and it might give them a side effect, sometimes, especially if we have someone maybe more towards the end of their life and in the last days of life, if we're causing respiratory depression, but we're making them feel better, Mm -hmm. then sometimes that's an okay side effect to have because overall the intention is there to make someone feel better Mm -hmm. obviously if we're over treating someone it's not okay to say oh it's fine we'll just leave them on that dose if we're over treating them and we're making them worse because Mm -hmm. of the medication then we need to review it what dose would you start on i would start really small Mm -hmm. so if we're using oral morphine liquid um just sort of one to two milligrams um as required Mm -hmm. and you can have that up to one or two hourly But it's really these low doses that work on the respiratory Mm centres, very much lower doses to the uh, doses we use for pain. So what about if you've got a patient who taking oral oromorph would actually make their breathing worse because their breathlessness is so bad, they're unable to eat or drink? So that's where we start thinking of subcutaneous um, methods or Mm. sometimes there's sublingual preparations as well Mm. that we can use as well. There's not so much for morphine. That tends to be the more more of the opioids that we use for pain, like fentanyl. But sometimes if we're using it as a dual treatment for pain and for breathlessness, we can use some sublingual lozenges as well. Mm-hmm. The next drugs or group of drugs that we have are anxiolytic medications. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really the benzodiazepines, the fast-acting um, benzodiazepines in the acute breathlessness, mm-hmm. and also sometimes SSRIs um, in um, as a sort of a longer treatment for breathlessness. These are particularly useful in people who have anxiety-driven breathlessness, where they get that fear and they're just so frightened, then that sort of feeds into this cycle of breathlessness. Mm-hmm. Um, and SSRIs are, are quite useful there. They don't work for all people. Um, so it's trialing with some people and giving it a good go as well, not just trialing for a month or so. Mm-hmm. It's really committing to about six months worth of treatment first before saying, actually, we, we haven't seen an effect there. That's very interesting. So the from an SSRI perspective then, as a hospital physician, Would you think that would be appropriate for me to prescribe that? Or is it something that the GP should be prescribing and monitoring? I think it's better um, to ask the GP to do that just because it takes time for the medication to build up and you need to have that follow up to check for side effects and things Mm -hmm. like that. And so if we just start a medication Mm -hmm. now, the dose that we would start in hospital probably wouldn't be an effective therapeutic dose anyway. Okay. And it's 
better to have someone to own that who can then sort of manage that dose progression if mm-hmm. necessary. Okay. The good thing with benzodiazepines is they actually complement opioids. And so we can have lower doses of each, but mm-hmm. when we use an opioid and a benzodiazepine together, the effect on breathlessness is better. Mm-hmm. And so having the combination means that we can use less high doses for each, um, but overall we get a better breathlessness than having a higher dose of one agent on its own. So they work synergistically together. Do you have a benzodiazepine that you prefer? So I like midazolam um, because it's relatively quick acting Mm -hmm. um, and the effects last for a few hours rather than um, lorazepam, which comes on very quickly and does wear off quite quickly. Mm -hmm. The other benzodiazepines tend to hang around a lot longer. They have a lot uh, longer Mm half-life. And so you tend to get more of the drowsiness. Um, And then they also take longer to to get into the system. Mm -hmm. When you just need something here and now to sort out this breathlessness Mm -hmm. that you're suffering with, you don't want to wait two, three hours for this drug to take effect in the bloodstream. You need it then. So if I was going to give midazolam then to our gentleman, what dose would you suggest and how would you give it? So again, orally, you Mm -hmm. can either use tablets or liquids. I would probably go for the same doses, so one to two milligrams, um, which makes it quite easy to remember. Yeah, so one to two milligrams of Oromorph, one to two milligrams of midazolam. Okay. The last drug to talk about is oxygen. Um, mm. And it's important to remember that oxygen is a drug. It's not a, a, a nice symptom control mm-hmm. waft of air that we can give to someone. It is a, a, a medication. Remembering that it's usually the sensation of the air moving that really helps with people's breathlessness. Mm-hmm. And it's going back to the British Thoracic Society guidelines on oxygen prescribing. So we would give it to people who have a um, PaO2 of less than 7.4 kilopascals at any point on an arterial blood gas um, on room air or less than 8.0 kilopascals with evidence of either colpulmonale, pulmonary hypertension or a thrombocythemia. Mm -hmm. The risks of using oxygen outside those guidelines is that there's a real psychological dependence um, that people can get and they get really attached to their oxygen. Mm And sometimes if there's people who don't need oxygen who are using it, it does tether you down. It, it, it's difficult to get something in the home that you can walk around with with a small canister. And so you're actually quite limited in what you can do around the house and, and in your day-to-day life. And people run the risk of actually deconditioning earlier because they're not exercising as much. They're not challenging their respiratory muscles as much. And actually it can exacerbate and... and uh, speed up the the rate of their breathlessness developing so in our gentleman he still smokes he still smokes exactly so obviously use of oxygen at home would be a big no-no because of the risk of explosions absolutely yes um and that is an absolute contraindication Mm -hmm. to having home oxygen and Mm -hmm. that is um yourself smoking but also if there's other people in the house smoking as well um and it's it's not good enough to say, oh, well, we'll hope they'll go outside or, or things like that. And it still happens that we have patients who might say they're not still smoking mm-hmm. or who think, oh, I'll just have one. And there's still cases of people um, presenting back at hospital with significant facial burns from um, oxygen and smoking. So it's a real consideration that we have to take into account when prescribing oxygen. Yeah. Okay. The 
other thing to think about is for this gentleman when we're in hospital is actually replicating what we're going to do at home with his oxygen therapy when he's in hospital. Because when he comes to hospital, a lot of the reason why breathlessness is better is actually there's a lot of people around. Mm -hmm. He gets his medications quickly and we manage his breathlessness with drugs really quickly. Yeah. But he's also on oxygen and a lot of the time because your interactions when you're a patient in hospital are actually few and far between Mm. with healthcare staff. But you have that oxygen on 24 hours a day whilst you're in. And it's very difficult to say, right, you're feeling better, time to go home, oxygen off, out you get. Yes. And Mm. so we need to think about um, replicating what we're doing with the oxygen in hospital to out of hospital. Mm -hmm. And it's very difficult to allow people to sit on the ward with saturations of 85% and not do anything about it. But actually, if he's continuing to smoke at home and we know he's not going to have long-term oxygen therapy at home, then actually we need to say, well, what are your normal resting saturations and what would be what's normal for you at home? And let's replicate that in hospitals. So going beyond the sort of the news and the news two score, but actually saying this is a normal oxygen level for you as an individual. Yeah. And as long as you're comfortable in hospital doing the things that we would expect you to do at home with the symptom control that you have then actually we should try and take that oxygen off as quickly as possible so it's not a sudden change from sitting comfortable with oxygen oxygen off and you're in transport on the way home yeah which can be quite challenging for people Mm. it also takes a lot of communication across the mdt especially in changeover of shifts really explaining Mm. that we are treating this person outside of the usual sort of news criteria that we would use Mm -hmm. talking about breathlessness and respiratory problems can you just recap on respiratory secretions in end-of-life patients because i know that this is something that i we see a lot particularly in acute medicine more than i thought actually Uh, so we could just have a bit of a recap on how we manage these secretions sure so the first thing really to think of is where what are the secretions where are they coming from Mm -hmm. is it Sputum Is it really thick, tenacious sputum that someone is struggling to bring up from their chest? Or is it oral secretions like saliva and things like that? Because that changes the management that we use for that person and the drugs that we prescribe. Mm-hmm. So if we start with, say for this gentleman, say that with his um, CAPD, he produces lots of thick, tenacious sputum mm-hmm. and he gets mucus plugging and that's why he's becoming breathless. We can use drugs that thin the secretions, make them more watery, and then make them easier to expectorate. So that's where drugs like carbocysteine come in, because they make our secretions more watery. If we have someone who has a lot of oral secretions, a lot of saliva, and perhaps their swallow isn't as good because they're frail, they may have dementia or something like that, and they're just struggling to control their saliva, then actually giving them something that makes their secretions more watery is only going to potentiate that. Right. And so we might need to consider something to dry up those secretions. And so that's where we use things like um, hyacine hydrobromide or hyacine butyl bromide or glycopuronium. Okay. And so it really, rather than just going, they have secretions, it's recognising that secretions have different meanings to different people and there's different causes of what's Mm -hmm. going on so really trying to tailor the drug you use to that Mm -hmm. one thing i would say is 
secretions in themselves are not always necessarily a bad thing. Okay. And the reason why I say that is if we're looking after somebody who's in their last days of life, a natural part of their dying process is to become less responsive and they lose some of the muscle tone in their neck and in their sort of, in, uh, sorry, and they lose some of the uh, control of the muscles of the neck and of swallowing and secretions will just naturally pull um, around the glottis and the epiglottis. And so sometimes having that gurgling sound, and we've heard it called the death rattle before, mm. and that is actually a sign that someone is deeply, deeply unconscious and actually they're so comfortable that they're now not recognising that there's saliva and secretions pooling there. And if we go giving lots of medications to try and dry that up, mm. because it doesn't sound nice, but if we give lots of medications to dry that up, then actually we can give people quite dry mouths and make them more uncomfortable chasing something that actually is a sign that they were very comfortable. Mm-hmm. And so there are a lot of things and lots of things in end-of-life care and palliative care really just come down to the communication mm. and talking to the staff looking after that patient, mm. including the doctors, um, and talking to the family and just saying, look, this is a sign that someone is just so, so comfortable mm-hmm. that they're ma- they don't even recognise that something's there what we should be focusing on let's keep their mouth nice and dry because they're going to uh, sorry nice and sorry what we should be focusing on is keeping their mouth nice and moist really good mouth care because people mouth breathe as they're dying Mm -hmm. and they can get very uncomfortable from that but if we're using suctioning and things like that to remove um, secretions it's causing distress that doesn't really have much benefit for the patient Mm -hmm. and again remembering it's the patient in the center of all this as long as they're comfortable they can have some noisy breathing. That's okay. As long as we understand why that's there, mm-hmm. make sure the patient's comfortable. Okay. So what I have seen um, sometimes inappropriately is saline nebulizers being given to help break up these secretions that are in the lungs. And it sounds like this would be when you've got excessive, this thick sputum. Have you had any experience of using saline nebulizers in this situation? So, Yes. Um, and again, seeing it used with good effect and okay. also sometimes used without the, the desired effect that okay. it achieves. Um, saline nebulizers are good to help break up mm-hmm. secretions that are there, but they're only really useful if we're using it in conjunction with some chest physiotherapy. Okay. And either that's with a professional on the ward or the patient performing them themselves or a family member performing it with them. Mm-hmm. But if you're giving them basically salty water to inhale into their lungs we need to make sure that they're able to cough it up and clear it out there and then so if it's someone who's maybe not as conscious or someone who is frail and actually their cough isn't strong enough to bring Mm -hmm. things up all you're going to be doing is adding volume to their air spaces Mm -hmm. um, rather than giving them a means of expectorating their, their sputum Okay. You mentioned hyacin as well. How would you give the hyacin? So for hyacin, that's usually used towards the end of life. So that's mm-hmm. usually in the last days of life. Um, I would normally give it as a subcutaneous injection. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason for that is we're probably giving it alongside other medications. Mm-hmm. Um, and we might be thinking about for this patient, if they're very symptomatic in their last days of life, 
and we're giving them some opiates, we might be giving them some benzodiazepines, but also giving them some um, anti-secretory medication as well. Mm-hmm. And if we're giving them lots of medications, potentially all as injections, it might be easier to put everything into a syringe driver. Okay. So yeah. having a, a slow subcutaneous infusion mm-hmm. of medication that just has one needle in the skin rather than multiple needles. Okay. Um, so usually by that point that we're using these medications, it's easier to add them all in together. Okay. I have sometimes seen patients with little patches behind their ear. Um, what patients are those used in and have you had any experience of those? So again, um, those tend to be patients with chronic respiratory conditions um, who we're, we're trying to help with their secretion burden. The patches are quite easy. Um, you only need to change them every few days rather than every day. Mm-hmm. It's important to remember the type of person that you're giving this to. So it needs to be someone who's either really good at managing their own medications or who has someone with them who's Mm -hmm. very good at managing their medications. If it's someone who maybe has some cognitive impairment and relies on dosset boxes, they might just forget that it's there Mm -hmm. or they might put another one on the other side and not remember to take it off. So it's it's a good medication when using it's a good way of getting a nice continuous dose of medication into Mm. someone but it's only really for those who can manage it well okay and just an aside here i know that lots of medications that people can take sort of your anticholinergic medication can actually be contributing to the dry mouth as well so just always remember when you are seeing patients clarking them in on the post-take ward round to really check what medications they're on and whether they can be causing dryness or whether they can be exacerbating the secretions. In end-of-life care especially, pretty much every medication that we give to patients will dry their mouth out. Um, And adding on to the sort of mouth breathing that comes with the natural dying process, dry mouth is the commonest symptom, Mm. and yet we never prescribe anything for it. No. Um, I think every time you see someone on a ward round or you're clerking someone in and, and... they're a person who's sort of in their last days or weeks of life mouth care is probably the best thing you can do to look after them it also gives something that we can talk to family members or friends about and it involves them in the care as well because they're often holding a bedside vigil and mouth care is something that we can't it's not very useful if it's every four hours or so it's a constant treatment and it really involves those people in that um patient's care as well and brings them in Okay. Thank you so much, Mark. That was a absolutely fantastic recap of how to manage breathlessness and also how to manage respiratory secretions in the last days of life. I've definitely taken away a lot and I'm sure the listeners will also have learned a lot from that. I know that there is a very good, nice guideline, NG31, looking at care of the dying adult in the last days of life. And that's a very good reference guide as well that will help. It also looks at all the symptomatology, so nausea, vomiting and pain that would be worth recapping. And I'm sure we'll cover that in a future episode of the podcast. Anything else that you'd like to add? Um, I think just the main thing is don't be scared of talking to people about breathlessness because it is such a big symptom that people present to Mm -hmm. hospital with. And we get very focused on the pathology that's underlying it and people come in and they have this terrifying experience and they leave with a new inhaler Mm -hmm. and actually what needs to be there is this discussion around breathlessness about understanding what's driving it Mm -hmm. if we're looking at making people feel better 
which is what we want to do as physicians, then talking to them is much, much better than prescribing new medications. Yeah. So just talk. Okay. Talking. It's all about communication. All about talking. Absolutely. So thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the podcast. If you want to get in touch, email at podcasts at rcplondon.ac.uk or you can tweet me at Amy Burbridge. Goodbye.